Welcome to Data and Construction. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Remco Denicker, Cloud Infrastructure Engineer at IBM. Remco, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So Remco and I go way back, hackathons in the Northeast, and just talking about how cloud and other technologies are evolving. And, and I really wanted to bring Remco on to talk about cloud generally, but hybrid cloud specifically, because I believe that's a lot of what you're doing now. Remco, you want to kind of lay the groundwork with what you do, what your kind of main job is right now? Yeah, certainly. I think uh, we're now at a time when everybody has heard of cloud, everybody has experience in cloud, everybody has moved workloads to the cloud. I think the maturity of the cloud development has also reached a, a point that everybody's working in a hybrid cloud environment. And uh, that hybrid term uh, should be extended to on-prem isolated environments from industrial IoT solutions that run on tiny microboards from two by four to the full-blown public cloud provided solutions. And I think most companies that have mature solutions will have anything in that range and it needs to be managed. It needs to be scaled, it needs to be cost-effective and competitive, and you know, that's where my team comes in to help with. What tends to make, what does what the, the, the process look like from everything's on-prem to cloud to maybe a more of a hybrid approach? <clears throat> or do you find that people go from on-prem to hybrid to primarily cloud? Is it, or is it all over the place? Like, how does that progress tend to work? I think it's very solution appropriate. You know, like I think anyone will come in and say, it's, oh, it's, it's all going to be one way and everything's going to be beautiful. Uh, it's not facing the fact that there is just real problems that require real unique solutions. In the area I work in, in industry, manufacturing, energy, oil and gas, there will be certain solutions that are perfectly well capable of running in public cloud. And that is very cost-effective. It's easy to cost-effectively manage. And, but there will be other solutions that for other, for whatever reasons, performance, security, or legal, they have to run very close to the field. And I think in reality, you'll see a mix. Different requirements will specify what is the most effective way of running it in what form. So you'll see, you'll see a mix. Some legacy solutions, it might simply not be cost effective to containerize and move them to cloud at all, maybe. You know, that's, uh, that's also a, a way to do it. If you have old, Java architecture is running. It is extremely challenging to containerize them on a microservices architecture. And you should really wonder if that's really the, the thing to do or not. That's interesting. So you find that companies that have certain things that got stood up long ago or, or that they've been working with for, well, for a long time, that maybe they have to keep it on-prem because it's just the, the migration cost or they'd have to totally replace the system. Is that right? Well, on-prem, or it's for different reasons. On-prem will be simply, you know, if you're on the factory and you want to have your data, you want to have your solution simply as close as possible to the factory. You don't want to send it into the cloud for just the latency of it. Uh, but there's also the security. You want to be as completely disconnected as possible. Sometimes the solutions that get deployed are completely physically disconnected. So you'll have engineers with a USB stick driving in their van to the factory to do installations. And that's just for security reasons, for one. That's interesting. And you, you translate that a little bit to construction, where a lot of the data that's being passed around is maybe a little bit less sensitive, except now mm -hmm. that we're starting to get to much bigger numbers or bigger quantities of data where 
it may not be that it's so time sensitive so much that it's just so big. An example of that is there's been a lot of reality capture innovation where they'll take, you know, whether it's a camera on a headset or on a, you know, on the top of someone's helmet or various mm-hmm. other ways, but you're consuming and then analyzing and then doing things with just enormous amounts of data where I think that that may be another area, right? Where we're either storing it locally or certainly thinking about how your solution works starts to be yeah, different. Absolutely. Because, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think also you have to think about that solutions are getting cheaper and cheaper. So it's not too difficult and costly to run certain solutions on, on-prem in a certain environment. And you also have to realize that as data becomes big and environments become digitalized, the number of cyber attacks especially in the old industry, manufacturing energy, oil and gas, is massive. It's, it's, it's the number one concern. So why not limit your, your tech service and simply not go out on the public internet and send your data across? Like, why not keep it where it's safe? Well, I'll turn that question around. Why wouldn't you? What would stop someone from, because that's the whole argument for the cloud, right, is cost of, and availability. So that's the kind of the balance, yeah. right? Is is security versus some of the other functionality you get when you're in a public cloud? Yeah, yeah. I think that you know, if you look at uh, solutions by public cloud providers, they come out of public cloud. They are simply not always ready to go to on-prem cloud. Um, you know, that's that's one reason. Um, other on the other side, when you look at a lot of companies that are working on-prem, they might not be ready skills-wise to go cloud, fully cloud-based. So you need somewhere have a fine middle where you need to be ready to adopt cloud technologies and the cloud providers need to be ready to be on-prem. You know, that's where you meet uh, in the middle. That makes sense. Hey, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier and make sure we define it because I think it's an important term. And that's microservices. So how do you define microservices as an architecture? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a nice definition, very high level. Anybody can read it. It's called 12 Factor Apps. They state 12 rules that would define microservices. And what it boils down to is that you have a very small contained code base that has one simple function. So you have like a simple one-to-one uh, function to service a relationship. It's uh, in their own code repository. It's containerized. It's separated from configuration of the environment. So you separate environment, configuration, and the uh, solution. So it can easily run anywhere, anytime. It's uh, interconnected to REST APIs typically, or you know you have other data connections so like uh, event streams or other ways possibly. But REST APIs are very common. Let's see. Yeah, and then there's there's a there's a few other minor details there, but. And, and just to add context for someone who isn't an engineer, there's a thing called service-oriented architecture, right? And, and it differs from a monolith. The reason I want to describe this is because I think we're seeing more and more of that everywhere. I mean, it's been around a long time, but it's, it's, you're hearing it more. And as you think about cloud and, and whether it's hybrid or otherwise, one of the benefits of being in the cloud is things like microservices make more sense than they otherwise might, right? Because you containerize these little features or functions rather, you've created a contract, right? With where that thing will do this, it'll do its function if you talk to it this way and it'll do its function that way and that's it. It's a contract that you give me X, I'll give you Y, correct? Yeah, yeah, no, actually that's it's very well phrased. And I think the benefit of doing it that way is that you can easily plug and play modules. So think of it as Lego blocks in that sense. And the fact that it's in a container means that, and a container means that they've, you know, it, like you said before, it's a kind of discrete little package of code, 
But the other piece that, that again, all you could really only do, I think, in a cloud, or at least you most often do it in a cloud, is if you suddenly need 10x more of that function to be happening, you can spin up a bunch of copies of that thing, right? So that's where scalability starts to really be exciting is when you've, when you've created something that you give it X, it'll give you Y, but now I need 10x and I'll get 10y. <laughs> so you can scale up yeah, really exactly. fast, right? So, yeah, exactly. So that's at the essence of where cloud technologies become cloud technologies. I think the abstraction from the resources of your software and that's those resources can be software resources. They can be hardware resources. You know, I think from the 70s already, we have environments that abstract away from the hardware so you can share the hardware resources. And that's sort of where container technologies that ultimately cloud technologies are based upon really comes from. And that allows for a more efficient usage of resources and costs, therefore. And it allows for scaling up and scaling down of, of resource usage. With containers, you go even a step further. Like you say, you can, you can have a little Lego block that does one thing and you can create or remove duplicates of that service so you can easily spin up and down availability of, of that function and that's really key here in, in managing costs and simplifying your architecture it comes with its own challenges because if you are able to spin up and down functions that means you also have to separate out uh, data persistency very rigorously from the function and that that can comes that comes with its, its own challenges and managing resources comes with its own challenges but Cloud technologies, I think we can almost be saying that it translates to Kubernetes technologies. It's become really mature in managing that. And, and what is Kubernetes? Kubernetes is itself a microservices architecture, you can say, and it is a self-healing, self-management, self-replicating system. So you, it's a container orchestration engine. That means that it runs containers for you, containers being the unit that packages up your functions. And it's you just say, run this container, and it will make sure that it is healthy. It will make sure that if there's high demand, it gets scaled up. It will make sure that it scales down if there's lower demand. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a self-managed system in that sense. And you speak about things happening just now that... It sounds like there probably isn't a guy with, you know, thick glasses and a bunch of monitors watching all this happen. I don't know where the thick glasses thing came from, but <laughs> but there isn't some mastermind with a bunch of monitors watching all this happen, right? I mean, part of the, whether it's yeah, Kubernetes can, or other things. Yep. Yeah, you can say that the mastermind and the thick glasses have been automated. And in that sense, Kubernetes monitors the resources that are running and it has certain health and life checks. It has certain usage monitoring checks and it responds accordingly. And of course you can define how it responds. You can overwrite all kind of default ways of how it responds, but so yeah, it, it, it does the work for you. And I think that's one of the areas where construction is as an industry is growing into is this idea that if you want to do things fast and at scale, you need to set policies that that work and that therefore you can automate but beneath that and this is where you're you're we're seeing you know again a, a lot of attention is the underlying data itself is often not that well organized or governed which ladders up to the ability and it, i mean i don't want to overstate how much these things are like hip bone connected to the thigh bone but they're all part of a piece right is when you have well governed data and well governed processes you can automate more 
and get more done and set policies that say, you know, the human part of it is to set the policy, then the, the machine part of it is to execute the policy, right? But that kind of makes some yeah. assumptions about data quality under it. Yeah, so you're going quite fast through a few really key points here. I think when you're talking data governance, that's its own thing, perhaps, but it relates to what you mentioned about automation. But what's perhaps also important to say about Kubernetes is that it's all standardized interfaces. So everything that runs on Kubernetes, or even if you have different implementations of Kubernetes, or you have different implementations of different container technologies, they all comply to a container standard, OCI, and then there's also the CNCF. Those are two governing bodies. Because everything is standardized according to specs, everything is easy to interface with according to a standard, and therefore it can be automated. Now, now we have automation. We can really talk about full automation, and they sometimes will call this everything as code, and that includes policies. Now everything is automated. Um, you mentioned the contracts between services have been automated as well, defined according to open API specifications or REST APIs. That means the data format, the data exchange is automated, including the platforms on which they're running as well. And because now everything is automated and standardized, we can talk governance. And I think the term there is governance, risk, and compliance. The, it becomes more and more easier and more effective to comply to certain governance. And the auditing becomes easier and better to do. So you see a whole trend in industries that have governance bodies where the, the compliance sector is, is really exploding as well. And that's, that's good because that means the standards of services can be increased. And in a world where everything is so insecure, there's so many cybersecurity attacks, that is at least one line of defense. How is that a, a line of defense against cybersecurity? How does that, what does that look like to, in, in terms of what you guys do? Yeah, so to give you a good example, so the NIST defines a lot of these security architectures and requirements. But there's other bodies. Each industry has its has its own body to, to define these, these security standards. And because everything is automated and it has interfaces, it it can also make you can also make sure to monitor your compliance levels. And that allows us to better respond to, to threats. I think the other aspect, perhaps, you know, this is maybe the other trend besides cloud is that machine learning is becoming really in, in, ingested into a lot of these processes. Uh, and that's that now we have these platforms that collect and gather so much data because it's in part because it's standardized and it interfaces so easily. You can easily access all this data, all these data logs on almost every level from the, the TCP level to the application level. And that generates tons of data that we don't know if it's valuable or not per se, these logs, but in case of a event, it becomes important data. And with machine learning, we can also process and analyze the data and therefore the threats very strongly. So I think there's two trends there. There's the clouds that helps enforce governance and compliance, and then there is the, the security incident and event management tools that become injected with machine learning-based and AI-based solutions that help automate some of the detection and prevention of threats. That's really interesting. And you know, one of the things we talk about with cybersecurity is that you know you can lock the system down all day long, but one bad keystroke and let somebody in. I mean, that's what phishing is all about, right? And I'm sure much more sophisticated it's, things. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Phishing is one of the biggest threats. The insider threat is one of the bigger threats. So it's like a, a, it could be a unintentional mistake by someone yeah, having something on disk, leaving their computer open, forgetting their computer open, someone looking over your shoulder. Who knows? And and I guess where I was going with that question is, it sounds like what you're saying is whether through observability, I don't know if that's the right word, but the ability to monitor, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, and layering on top of that sometimes AI or machine learning is able to sometimes monitor some of that. Is that what I'm hearing? Is that that in addition to that's, threats coming from the outside, but also it... Yeah, so that's definitely part of it. I think the other part is that... It's a lot simpler and easier to have zero trust policies. That means that you give people access, but you only give them access on a neat basis. So the enforcement of those zero trust policies is, can be done much easier. And it can also be easy, easier detected because of these um, 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 compliance tools that you now have. So you can easily detect when somebody has more access than needed. How interesting. Can you go into zero trust a little bit more? This is the kind of thing that you see on, on an article or a headline and people rarely stop right. to define it. And at its very simplest, it's not so hard to define. You, you know, If you go and cook tomato soup, you should only have access to the tomatoes. There's no reason why you need to access the coleslaw when you're making a tomato soup. So that's that's really the essence of it. And if I translate that to a, a containerized platform, if you have a, a web interface, then that web interface might receive requests for on port 80 uh, or even better, port 443. But there's no need for it to have any other ports open. And then vice versa, if there is a web application that needs data for a certain request, you should only give access Read only read access to that data that it needs to know. There's no reason to give access to more tables than that. There's no read to even to give more access uh, to more columns than it needs to know. Each application runs as a certain automated user. Only that automated user that runs that application should have that access. And then the container itself running within a platform should only be contained and not be accessible by anything else but what needs to access it. So it's a very locked down principle. Whereas before, maybe you were running something on a virtual machine and it was really complicated to lock down access. And you basically had just everything. Like I'm sure a lot of people have multiple applications running on their on their laptop and you have them all running under the same user, but that's really not very safe. Like there's no need if you're running Excel to have other applications running in that same space. So it's like an extremely rigid approach. And because of automations, you can set defaults and start off with a zero trust and then you add access when needed. And this is where policies come back, right? Is that, is that it doesn't have to be yeah. some someone sitting there in front of a bunch of computers or monitors saying, all right, Remco needs a little more access. Let's make sure we give it to him, right? You can set yeah, policies no, based on... Yeah, and it's great because a lot of times these uh, the tools... Um, the controls, as they're called, the, the security definitions that the security organizations define, they often come already pre-installed on a lot of solutions that do uh, monitoring and compliance. And all you need to do is you pinpoint to your environment and it'll do a, you know, a SOC 2 compliance test and it'll give you the level of compliance of your system. That makes a lot of sense. How does it, so how does this the zero trust work when you've got users that are, you know, you got 5,000 people that are work using a system 
and you've gone and said, okay, we're going to implement zero trust. So people are only accessing what they need to access. How do, how do companies figure out how to get the balance right between the efficiency of people being able to grab whatever they need to grab and the, the risk of people being able to grab whatever they need to grab? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a broad question, of course. And we're talking access to, to, to many different types of data, different levels, different security threats. But you know, at, at, at a high level, you can perhaps say that there is uh, users, user groups, their capabilities, and you map them up somehow. Uh, to use a, a technical term, uh, role-based access controls. So you define a, a, a verb, an action, say, uh, uh, read files with certain extensions, and you assign those to groups, and you assign users to groups. And that's at the basis of, of which how things would work. But every solution will implement it slightly different, of course. Yeah. I'm always used to uh, the Kubernetes environment, uh, specifically OpenShift, which uh, has like extremely good uh, security default. And you know, I can talk a little bit more about that, but uh, otherwise other systems will have similar solutions. Well, let's talk a little bit about OpenShift then. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, OpenShift is a flavor of Kubernetes. So it's important to note that something I mentioned before that the CNCF manages the standardization of the container orchestration platforms like Kubernetes. And then you have all kinds of upstreams like OpenShift that sort of contribute a lot to those standards. And they are typically ahead of the curve a little bit with certain implementations. OpenShift in particular has focused a lot on implementing security defaults. Like uh, uh, Kubernetes is still running on a virtual machine underneath, you know, so you have like double layers of resource sharing there. Uh, and there is all kinds of security constraints set at different levels within that architecture. So at the virtual machine or operating system level, Shift will have RHEL running or CentOS, which has its own Linux-based security constraints. Then it's running a restricted form of Kubernetes, which has all kinds of security context constraints, set namespace constraints, all based on Linux container technologies. And then the container engine that runs ultimately the functions that are containerized, the container engine itself has all kinds of limitations to make sure that the applications don't have any kind of unneeded root capabilities on your operating system that you're running on. So uh, there's all kind of default settings, and I think that saves companies and engineers a ton of work in implementing those security constraints. So I think that's always helpful. That's great. I want to go back to this problem you talked about, data persistence. So we've talked about Kubernetes, we've talked about microservices, we've talked about containerization. And one of the things that you pointed out is when you make when you abstract away the function and maybe you're scaling it up and scaling it down, all those things are consuming and producing data that has to be different or separate from the thing producing the data, right? Because if you're scaling it up and down and it goes away, where's the data going to live? How do you think like it's, that? Yeah. yeah, it's probably the biggest paradigm shift if you're moving from a traditional application programming to containerized application programming. Because now you're running an environment where essentially your function is built to disappear, essentially. I know it's one of my favorite 12-factor apps lines or rules is, is that you built to delete something. Of course, it's meant to easily replace something with something better and newer. But on a Kubernetes platform that is self-healing, it could be that you have a glitch in your application. Kubernetes detects there's a glitch. It, it'll kill your container instance and redeploy that container instance. So that means that at any moment in time, you have to assume that any data 
in memory or any data that is that's whose whose life's time is tied into that container might end and disappears. So it means that if you need persistence, you need to ensure persistence outside of your application. And that's a big challenge for an engineer who's used to think that persistence is tied into the application. Yeah, so there is typically there is a, a, a new trend in software storage called software-defined storage. It's mm-hmm. essentially a management interface that allows to have a, a virtualized layer in between your storage solution. You used to have, if you have block storage, then you write directly to your storage disk and it's hard to scale. But with software-defined storage, you can more easily scale up your underlying storage solutions because the actual physical hardware there is abstracted away by this intermediary software layer. So I think that's that's an interesting trend that it's not exclusive to containerized environments, but it's sort of parallel with containerized environments and the containerized environments have increased the need for such solutions uh, because there's so much scaling up and down going on. That's really interesting. How does that relate to other data architectures like data lakes and warehouses and so on? Are, are they completely separate concepts or is there some parallel there? So if you talk about data warehouses, you're talking like big data solutions or you're talking Hadoop and uh, uh, distributed file systems. Those are kind of the storage end solution already, but the data warehouse solution, which is the analytics part, is kind of built on top of it. And that itself could very well be containerized and yeah, running on Kubernetes. So I would kind of separate it out from the containerized solutions because it's its own problem. Um, yeah. but That's really helpful. So what you're talking about with software-defined storage is really this, the storage that's needed for an application to function versus longer-term storage, which is where we would think of something like a warehouse or, or a data lake. Is that, is that uh, accurate? No, I wouldn't say that's accurate. I would say that the, the actual storage ultimately is hardware-based. So you need a piece of hardware to store storage on. And there is certain scalability challenges with a certain storage solutions, and there's costs related to it. So you need somewhere to find a balance between being able to abstract away from the physical shareable hardware to the software that scales up and down in this new environment very strongly. It fluctuates very strongly. So it's, it could produce more or less data at any time. At any time, so you need a way to quickly scale up the physical storage that's available to your software, and that's where software-defined storage comes in. It allows you to um, allocate additional blocks of storage that's available to your software, much more flexible than it uh, used to be available with pure block storage. So we've looked at a bunch of different ways that kind of cloud lives and and really talked a lot about what goes on in clouds with this scalability, both of functions and now of storage. Very cool. Well, Remco, listen, I learned a lot. I want to get you back, but I want to give listeners a break. So thank you for being on the podcast. This has been great. All right. I hope everyone has a good time. Cheers.